Hi, my name is David Speed. And I'm Adam Brazier. And this is the Creative Rebels podcast. Featuring inspirational stories and practical advice from some of the most prolific and successful creators in the world. Adam and I have co-founded multiple creative businesses and turned our varied passions into our careers. There's never been a better time in history to make a career from being creative. So many people will tell you that you can't do it, but we're here to show you that you definitely can. Right, let's do a podcast. Welcome back, Rebels. Hello. How are you, Mr. Speed? Yeah, all right. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling reflective. Oh, what have you reflected over? Well, last week we did our intro and I mentioned in it about doing ads on the podcast and how it was something that we wouldn't do and I wouldn't want to say, like, enter Rebels at checkout for a discount. And then I was thinking about it afterwards and I was like, why did I just shame that form of earning money? We've got friends who do that on their podcasts and that's fine. And that's actually a really, really good. Like if you are thinking of starting a podcast, a great way to monetize it is through through sponsorship. And I just wondered why I felt dirty about it and why I was like, why yeah. was I shaming that form of earning money? Because really like this podcast, we want everyone listening to be able to maximize their revenue streams and to get money from in any way that they can, because in order to keep the roof over their head so that they can then be creative. Yeah. I feel like whenever you start anything, you need some form of income. You need some form of commerce to keep stuff ticking over. Unfortunately, like when we started this podcast, like we had our other businesses, they were bringing in the money supporting it. It's not like we started with absolutely nothing. If you are in a situation where someone's offering to give you money to help you do the thing you love doing, then take it like that's a great as long as you your beliefs are in line with theirs i feel like that's completely fine if you're pushing something you don't believe in like i think i think a lot of the negativity comes from when you see quote unquote influencers on instagram promoting health teas or something that actually they don't really believe in or ever use yeah but they're saying actually if you purchase this with my code you'll get a discount for this great product which they don't actually believe in and i think that's what needs to be talked about a bit more like Do you actually use this? How authentic is this thing that you're selling? Because I know there's a lot of YouTubers that I watch who will sell Squarespace things. And if anyone consumes YouTube content, I feel like it's hard to miss a Squarespace ad these days. Yeah, oh my God. I'm Robin Grasby, the founder of Alt-Rock. I'm Brittany Ash from Birch Floral. Yeah, so it's like these people genuinely use these products. Like they've actually used Squarespace websites for the past however many years. They actually use the things that they're promoting. There's a lot of creators as well who will work on it. Like their whole incomes will be based on affiliate schemes. So they'll basically talk to their audience about something that they love, something that they use all the time, something that they help will make their audience be better. And by you purchasing through them, that creator then gets a commission from that, which I think is great because it's like, if you're actually benefiting from the service that they're talking about, why shouldn't they benefit in some way from it? Especially if that's then going to allow them to create more content going forward. Yeah, that is actually sort of the perfect circle of it is is like letting people know about a great product, offering them a chance to like sample that product or or to get a discount on that product. and, And then also the creator being rewarded for promoting that product the listener then getting to use a really great product and then it's just yeah that's that's kind of a really beautiful cycle yeah i, I suppose there was just some some shame around hocking goods to people which is which is so totally against my because i just knew as soon as we recorded it they didn't sit right with me and i was just thinking why did why did you say that because 
if you're listening right now, like go and get that bag. It's only the same as having a shop that sells products that someone else has made, which is most shops. Basically, you'll make a small percentage on everything that gets sold because obviously you've purchased it and you've got your profit margin in there. So it's only the same as that. I think we, there's just so much negative connotation around people pushing things that they don't actually believe in in a way to make money. But I think if it's done in an authentic way, then you should support those people. Yeah, if it feels icky to you, then then it's it's probably not going to be the right fit. If you can, because it's like sometimes you just need the paycheck, but like if you yeah. can wait, if it doesn't feel right for you, if you can wait it out and let those brands that do align with you, then that's, that's where the gold is. Like holding your breath for as long as possible is like so important because I think if you start taking those smaller deals now, for example, you start working with some smaller sportswear brands and you do a lot of things with them. And then when it actually gets to the stage when you're big enough to work with someone like Nike, they're like, oh, we would work with you, but you've worked with so many of these other smaller brands that maybe we're not interested now. You don't feel exclusive anymore. You're kind of tarnished. Exactly. Especially as a creative. I know a lot of artists that go to work with bigger brands, they'll only ever really be used by one brand. So you need to be careful about, you can't, if you've got a really specific art style, you can't have that then attached to one brand and then the next week attached to another brand and the next week attached to another brand because it doesn't really work like that. People want to be a bit more unique. If one company has used this visual style for their campaign, the other company is not going to use the same thing for at least a good few years. So it's being really clever about what you do say yes to. Uh, so you mentioned uh, shops uh, a minute ago. Do you, um, Adam, do you, do you use uh, online shopping at all? <laughs> I think I only use on online shopping, especially with the current climate. Oh, so you've, you've purchased from the internet. That's interesting. Did you know that uh, with Klarna, you can pay for your products uh, in cheeky little installments? Oh, I, I've... I did. I do know that that's the thing, and I massively disagree with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is not an ad for Klarna. So sorry if you work for Klarna. It was brought to our attention this week that um, this this seemingly like like really empowering, fun young company that allows you to to sort of pay for things is actually getting a lot of people in debt and is actually really uh, troublesome. I think especially as a young person, like I remember being at uni and like the bank being like, how would you like a £3,000 overdraft? And I was like, yes, please. And then I was like, well, cool, I've now got a free £3,000. But then actually paying that back over the next like five or six years was made life really hard. I think with anything, it's good to buy things when you can afford them. Like don't get credit don't get stuff that may seem great now like oh you can buy this now and pay it off over the next six months with zero percent you don't know what's going to happen in the future people we didn't know that coronavirus was going to take over the world the way it has and impact so many jobs so many lives something can happen at any point so i think don't get credit where it's like you can pay this off over the next six months based on what your current situation is because you're basing it on the belief that in six months time, you're going to have the money that you will be able yeah. to, which is a very human thing. We we are programmed to think positively about our future selves. And we we picture, I think that's how a lot of people get into debt is they, they think by this date, I'll be earning more. I will have sold more of my stuff. I will have whatever. And, and they then believe that that future them is going to be able to afford the thing, which is like quite often not the case because i know like bill gates said that you overestimate what you can do in one year and you underestimate what you can do in 10 years and i think that's a really interesting example when it comes to finances because people generally think oh well if i've got a year to pay this off oh well this time next year i'm gonna 
have a big business and everything's going to be amazing and life's going to have progressed so much but actually a year is a relatively quick period of time and often things don't go quite the way you think they will actually most times they probably don't which is why we always kind of say to people like patience is really really important with these credit systems they always seem great because it's like they're basically preying on the fact that you think the future is going to be so much better than it is and I would always recommend, if you can, only purchase with stuff when you actually have money for it. And I think this comes back to like when we first started the business, like we didn't have any money and any money we got, we could have taken that, put in our pockets and had a fun time with it. But we just reinvested back into the business. And I think that's a really smart thing to do when you're starting anything. Live as frugally as possible and just keep reinvesting and reinvesting and reinvesting because you'll grow something so much stronger, which will last for so much longer going forward. It's so true. Patience is absolutely key. And those those early days, days for us because i think it's the hardest advice that we give to people and and having gone through it ourselves it's advice that we definitely can give but it's so hard to say to someone like just wait just hang in there just be patient like it's it's coming if you believe that it's coming it will come and through the years of doing that and not being able to buy a round for a round of drinks for friends when we go out not being able to buy trainers not being able to go to to the cinema like all of the things that most people take for granted especially if they've got a nine to five all of a sudden we we couldn't do that stuff and if someone had said to us at that time like be patient it's a really hard thing to hear because there's this frustration of you feel like when it comes to status and everyone else has got these physical items that portray status outward to the world and you are wearing the same thing as the last time you saw them it feels to you yourself that you're in a hole and that that people will think that you're a loser and that you're not doing very well but what you're doing is building and really the people that are like no one's no one's probably thinking of that about you because they're too worried about themselves. I doubt they're judging you and I doubt they remember what you were wearing last week. It really comes down to believing in yourself, trying to to get rid of that physical attachment to things and that kind of need to to keep purchasing because and that's a that's a long journey that takes people a long time to go down um of of realizing that like you are you and you're not made by the stuff that you own it's nice to have these cool things i think for me it's the differentiation between pleasure and happiness mm -hmm. and it's like when i buy a new pair of shoes that gives me pleasure and it's this temporary thing that i'm like oh that's great and every time i put the shoes on it's like oh i do love this pair that's really cool but it doesn't bring me happiness happiness is a much um deeper more calm it's a calmer feeling it's it's less like of this sort of excitement of the new it's calmed down version of like i am happy with the way things are going like like i've got my goals and my plan and things are trundling along happiness is a lot more boring than pleasure i think if you buy something and you haven't actually earned it yet that happiness is even shorter because there's no mm. it doesn't feel like it's actually earned Whereas if you've earned the money and then purchased something, you can look at that thing and be like, I know how much hard work went into getting this. Whereas if you just get it what seems like free, then when you're actually paying it off, you're not getting any satisfaction. Every time you're giving money over every month, you're not getting any satisfaction back from that. So it's actually like mentally, it's a really bad thing because you get the shorter spike than you would if you actually earned it. And then you only get negatives every month when you see that extra little bit going out of your bank account. Yeah, so it, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, it does, it definitely does take work and it can be really frustrating, but just take our word for it. Like it does get better. You can even do what what we did. And I think just 
the reason we look back with so much like happiness are those struggle days at the beans and noodles period, as we call it, because that's all we could afford to eat. When we look back at beans and noodles, like it's some of our happiest memories. And I think that's because when we did earn something yeah. like so instead of like if if we wanted um, new shoes, we'd set ourselves a goal of like, OK, over the next few months, we're going to work with a sportswear brand and we're going to try and get some free shoes. And like, we did that shit. And, like, <laughs> and then, and that was so like amazing. It's like, yeah, we got brand new sneakers. We did not pay for them because they were given to us through a brand deal. Every time we wanted a night out, we made it a work do. If there was somewhere where we wanted to be that we couldn't afford tickets to go to, we'd approach them and say, we'll do live art at your event. And then for us, it was a free night out. And looking back on those times, like those were some of our like happiest, funniest, silliest, like most amazing times was was doing that because we we didn't have anything else we couldn't go and buy stuff or afford to go to this mad night out so when we actually got it for free and we're there drawing live and we're and like just we're partying but we're working at the same time those times were so fun and it's so much more rewarding do you remember the time when we were painting live at a, there was like a club event in central london i think it was like just off regent street somewhere and they was it my birthday cuckoo club yes that was the one yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so <laughs> We got there, I think we started painting at, say, 9pm or something, whenever the, the club first opened. But the, that night, it didn't really get busy until, say, half 11. And we were just painting as normal, going quite quickly. The club actually came out and said, like, oh, do you mind slowing down for a bit because we're not quite busy yet? You can welcome to just come inside and have a table and get some free drinks if you want. And we were like, okay, yeah, we'll probably just be inside for, like, half an hour. So went inside, like, both got a drink each. The and, like, and at the time, we had nothing and yeah. we were like at like times were tough it was the very very beginning of our business and the cuckoo club i don't know if it's still running but it was uh it was just off regent street wasn't it yeah. and it was i mean we had no right being there it was <laughs> i mean the clientele there were were just not our level they were status wise they were several tiers above us and it was ridiculous like the the decor it was like being in a movie it was just s surreal it was mad and like people just kept coming over and being like oh what do you want to drink and we could literally just order anything off the menu and it would be free so we were like oh cool we'll have this and this and then someone was like oh it's probably gonna be about two hours until you start again so by this time we had been drinking loads we started partying and then we had to go back outside and finish painting and i remember like trying to finish this painting completely drunk like really trying to focus on what what it was we were trying to do it was just it was such a fun evening and I, I don't drink anymore as, uh, as well, but I, w I was drunk as well. And I just remember, I, I so vividly remember <laughs> painting and, and go, like trying to, like I'm looking at my hand in front of me and I'm trying to focus on the spray can and focus on what I'm painting and then saying to myself in my head, you're really drunk. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then laughing to myself that I was really drunk and just sort of like, I must have looked absolutely insane, <laughs> just staring at the wall, giggling going you're so drunk and like how are you going to get away with this and I'm like seeing the photos afterwards like we did good pieces i don't yeah, know how it was good, yeah. <laughs> because we were wasted and like to draw a straight line i don't know how we managed anything but yeah it did it did look good yeah it's good and that was the night you actually lost uh, a ladder on the way home as well i think you left it on the bus did i but again like those were the fun times man yeah. like that yeah it's it's so fun when you have nothing and, and you you gradually like start to to step up those steps. It's um well not if you've lost your ladder, but <laughs> yeah, it's it, yeah, it's amazing. Because I am a professional, I'm going to segue that into uh, this week's guest, which is Kimberly Wilson. 
everything that we do pretty much is habit. So our spending, our spending patterns are habits that we are, that are kind of ingrained in our brain. And, and like really this episode, it just talks about everything about the brain, how to get out of habits, how to set new, new kind of habits for yourself and everything else that goes around with, uh, with sort of brain health. Talking to Kimberly was so interesting. I just love talking to anyone about neuroscience, the brain, how it works and, and everything around just thinking. Yeah, to sit and talk to Kimberly, like I feel like we could have done gone for another two hours because everything she was saying was so interesting. And I was like, we definitely need a part two of this. Yeah, our brains were on fire as we were listening. Um, so two little disclaimers. Uh, one is that the sound is not perfect on this um, Zoom issues, COVID. Thank you very much. Um, so sorry about that. But yeah, I mean, it's fine. And the second one is I'm very sorry for butchering science and realizing that I was drowning and just getting myself into uh, a mess, which um, fortunately Kimberly pulled me out of. But uh, you know, when you just start speaking sometimes and then you're like, I've no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah. I started bumbling on about synapses. And like, <laughs> what is this fucking guy talking about? Especially when you're talking to someone who is literally an expert at this. Yeah. 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 I was like, oh, she'll love this. She'll be well impressed by my, <laughs> by my neuroscience knowledge and then realized I know nothing. <laughs> so yeah, sorry for, for being a moron. But this week's guest is Kimberly Wilson. Kimberly is a psychologist, podcaster, and author. Kimberly is an expert in the overlap between food and psychology and how what we eat can affect how we behave. Her book, How to Build a Healthy Brain, is a complete manual on how to exercise, recharge, and care for the most important organ in our bodies. Brain health is massively neglected in modern conversations of well-being, but Kimberly is on a mission to help us better understand our brains and how to best care for them. In this episode, we talk about creativity, prison, and changing your thoughts. That your brain is an energy efficient organ and it will try to save energy and it will save energy by going down the well-trodden path as often as it can. Hi, Kimberly. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so we actually had a date in the calendar. It's it's so crazy. Like we were supposed to talk to you the day before. Like no, it was the day after lockdown started, wasn't it? it was our was our date we had in the calendar? Yeah, I was just come to your studio and we were going to have a chat and a cup of tea, and it was all going to be cozy um, and in person. And now we are at a social. We're, distance. we're more in the social distance, <laughs> and then the world flipped upside down so how was how has this time been treating you how has your lockdown been it's been a bit of a mixed bag i right at the beginning of, it's, it's been such a weird time so i literally you know i was gearing up quite a busy summer because obviously i just um published a book and then lockdown happened and so everything all the plans were scrapped um but also i was i was doing a bit of studying at the time and I had to transition all of my clinic from in-person to online. So my first six weeks were a strange mix of adjusting to plans being scrapped and then also then trying to make sure that all of my clients were okay and adjusting them to a different way of doing our work, but also making sure that they were managing the anxiety of lockdown and coronavirus as well. So I was almost outside of myself for a lot, a lot of it. Um, and it was only, I guess, towards the end of um, end of April and well, maybe end of May even, um, where 
I started to kind of think about, okay, what do I need and where am I? Um, so it's been, yeah. An odd, and how have you found that transition? Have is you that... kind of, has it been okay? Has it kind of gone better than you thought it would? Or has there been some like hurdles along the way? Yeah, it's it's been better than I anticipated. So um, very much I was thinking, you know, I think therapy works best in person. I think there is a huge amount to be, and, and even more than that, I think human relationships are about contact, eye contact, facial expression, being able to have the total experience. Um, and that's why when I do my podcast, I always try to do it in person, even when it's massively yeah. inconvenient and I'm schlepping across half the country to try and speak to someone. I think there's something you get, which is kind of qualitatively different and better in person. Um, so I was really not looking forward to trying to do therapy, which is deeply intimate yeah. um, and obviously deeply human, deeply personal um, over, over, you know, Zoom or over kind of remotely. But it actually went better than I thought. So, um, and, and people have um, adjusted better than I thought. I think for some people, and maybe it's more about the, the circumstances around it. So for some people, actually what lockdown has done is to give a bit of a cocoon from yeah. the rest of the world. So particularly people who perhaps might have been very anxious, whether it's socially anxious or whether they have difficult relationships in the world, maybe with workmates or family, what it's meant is that they can stay at home and they can avoid those relationships. And so for those people, a good chunk of work was able to be done because they were able to just focus on, on the work and not having to manage these relationships. So that I hadn't anticipated that and that's been I guess a silver lining. Um, and, and I guess the other practical thing about therapy is that, you know, sometimes you get upset and then you have to leave your therapist's office and get on the tube or get yeah. on the bus or stand in the queue or somewhere. And you have to kind of pull yourself back together. Um, and of course, for some people, if they're having therapy essentially in their kitchen or in their bedroom, they're, they, they feel a bit freer to be a bit of a mess if they need to be or and not having to pull themselves together or put their kind of public face back on so again for for those occasions it's it's been good for people but i i do think there's little bits that get lost people are a bit more distracted they're you know it's you can't see that all their full body language so it's really been uh, kind of six of one half it's really interesting what you said there because like I've never thought about someone leaving a practice and then suddenly having to deal with the real world. And it must be hard if you're dealing with anxiety, then coming out into the world and being like, oh, now I've got to go through like what I've just, it's just, I've just had some like help for it. And now I've got to go and experience it again. What do you say to people as they leave that kind of helps them get home or helps them get to what would be like a safe space again? Mm. I think it's less about what you say and more about how you manage the session so kind of my responsibility is to not manage but kind of contain the flow of the session so I will be very careful for example about not opening up quite a difficult topic yeah close to the end of the session because I then have to then send someone out feeling quite raw so you you start to kind of slightly shape the session so you're helping someone come back to themselves and you know feeling more functional um, towards the end of the session so they don't feel like you know and we all have you know a public face there's nothing necessarily um, unusual about that but it can be very jarring to go from a place of kind of deep 
intimacy and openness to then feel like you have to pull the shield and the armor back on yeah. to be out in the world and it can just feel a bit kind of disorienting so you kind of gently help someone um close things back up in a, in a safe way so that they can go out and, and not feel too raw or too vulnerable this is a big question but what would you say is your mission her um i don't know i feel like i have i was thinking of this this morning um i think i have too many missions and i need to uh, <laughs> narrow down focus a little bit so um i broadly i feel that if you can help someone feel better then you probably should like if you can ease someone's burden and help them breathe a little easier then it's hard to think of a reason why you wouldn't do that. Um, so I think that's kind of the umbrella under which a lot of what I care about sits. Um, um, and, and so underneath that, that's kind of my individual clinical practice. Um, cause I was thinking about why I spend so much time on social media. Cause I'm, I'm looking at Twitter and Twitter is a bit of a hellscape at the moment. <laughs> why am I here? Yeah. But, um, what I do on, on Instagram is, you know, I was thinking most people don't have access to a psychologist. They just, we're, we're, there aren't that many of, well, not as many as people need. Um, we can be hard to access. Waiting times are very long. And so what I can do is offer a little bit of a psychologist experience to a broader number of people, because, you know, some of the things that I take for granted as being part of my clinical practice are just things that can help people that they just don't know about, you know, very simple tips or way of seeing things that can help shift an attitude or reduce a critical voice and just help people feel a little bit better about themselves or in their lives. Um, so I guess that's part of mission two. And then the, my big mission at the moment is um, reducing prison violence and getting pe fewer people to go to prison. So <laughs> <laughs> wow, just a little, just a little one there. Um, really, really thinking about the relationship between food, nutrition, behaviour, um, and and the really startling statistic for me, which is that even when you control for other factors of deprivation, children on free school meals are four times more likely to be excluded from school. Um, and I just think that is horrific. Um, that there are children at risk of being excluded from school. And when you get excluded from school, basically your life chances, they're not flatlined, but they start to decline, right? Um, it's harder to get back into mainstream education. You might end up in a people referral unit, which do very good work, but it is where children are actively recruited for antisocial engagements and, and types of behavior. Yeah. It makes it difficult then to get a job where you can look after yourself or look after your family. So this, this point of exclusion from school is really important and, and uh, can turn someone's life. And the idea that children are at risk of being excluded from school because they're hungry absolutely horrifies me. And I think we should be taking it much more seriously. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because it's a bit like a snowball and that snowball can go in either direction. It can either go in a positive way that just continues to build and build or it can go in a negative way and that it works in exactly the same way. Just like a small push in a negative direction right at the start of someone's life can make a huge impact towards the end of it. Yeah. And, and the thing about, you know, there are lots of 
features of life that will impact somebody's life chances, you know, your maternal health, whether your parents are together, whether you ever had a parent in prison, whether you're born into poverty, there are so many things outside of your immediate control or that will take many years to shift that, um, that really aren't amenable to immediate change. But nutrition is one of the ones that if we just organize ourselves a little bit, we could shift very, very quickly. Um, it's really amenable to change in, even in, if we're thinking about kind of clinical trials, we see improvements in two or three months in people's well-being, mood, brain health, brain function. Um, and when we're thinking about children, then it should be, it should be a no brainer. It should be okay. Well, if we know that there are children who are hungry, um, and we know that this is going to have an impact on their mood, their behavior, their attitude, attitude, their impulse control then this is something we can address. We can feed children. We can feed children. There's enough there's enough money in the country. Yeah. We can feed children. <laughs> <I> just... <laughs> so is is the correlation then to the kids that are on the free school meals, are the are the quality of those meals um not high enough that they're that they're functioning, that their brain is getting enough food and fuel that they need? Or is it the fact that because they're on free school meals that correlates to perhaps they're not eating in other areas? And maybe that's the only um, so meal they're getting. It's a couple of things, right? So, so you know, what, one of the big correlates that people will assume is that, you know, well, if you're on free school meals, there are other indices of poverty that you're experiencing probably. Um, and yes, and of course, but when we control for that, we still see this effect. And there are a couple of things that happen, um, or a few things. So one is that often children who are on free school meals, their lunch is their main meal of the day. Um, yeah. They will probably not be having breakfast and they and if they are, they're not having yeah. a nutritious breakfast. Right. Um, the issue as far as the UK um, education uh, landscape is, is that your most important lessons, maths, science, science and English are in the morning. Um, and so that we know that when you're hungry, you can't concentrate, you're focused, you're distracted, yeah. you're a bit agitated, you're hungry, you're like you're doing anything else. And so you have a group of children who are a too hungry to concentrate on the most important lessons of the day. It's not like they're too hungry to do PE. They're too hungry to do math and science. But also what happens when you're hungry um, is that you have a rise in cortisol in, in your stress hormone. Um, that's why you get hungry. It's why you get agitated. Um, and, but, but children don't know that, right? Children don't have that language to say, I miss, I'm, I think I'm feeling a little yeah. bit stressed and agitated. I, uh, I think I might be angry. All they have is that experience of agitation, which they act on. So in studies where they have given children a nutritious breakfast, they've reduced fights in the first break by 30%. So children are fighting because, you know, they're agitated but it's right. linked to their hunger. So you've got this twofold um, factor, which is one, they're too hungry to concentrate, so they're just not gonna do quite as well, which is gonna kind of erode their self-esteem, make them feel not yeah. as good about themselves, maybe get them labeled as lazy or you know whatever. Then you've got the second part, which is just the agitation and how that manifests kind of physically for them in a way which then also gets them labeled as troublemakers or naughty or you know put in a different group or sent or again more likely to be excluded from school but then the final part of this i'm sorry for giving you a lecture in the middle of the podcast love it 
the final part is simply access to the nutrients that build the brain, right? So if your brain requires, uh, for example, these essential fatty acids that you can only get through your diet or only by, you know, properly bioavailable from the diet through oily fish in this, in this instance, then kids on free school meals aren't the kids who are eating salmon yeah. for lunch or dinner. They're not the kids who are, you know, ha- sitting down to sardines, uh, you know, on toast or whatever. Um, so that they, they're up, their brains literally aren't getting the nutrients needed for optimal function. It's so interestingly, that. would it be better if a free school meal was at breakfast time rather than at lunchtime? There's an argument for that. If if it was only if you could only give kids one meal, give them a, a big breakfast. That would that would never happen though, would it? Because the because the government would then because people would then be like, Well, but you can't All then day. let them go hungry at lunch and the government are only gonna want to provide one free meal a, a day, because then it's just gonna come down to money. Um, and then it's also yeah, so it's it's the issue of hunger itself and then it's also nutritional constituents. It, it makes like this is why I, I always get so stressed like we've had the the best teacher in the world on the podcast before and one of the things i think that is so frustrating is the the old cliche of the children are the future is like but they bloody are like if if you want a successful country <laughs> then you must invest everything into the youth into the young people because they are they are like if you're if you're breeding not successful people then your country is not going to be successful you would feel like every single resource should go and yet they are so underfunded and it seems to me like because you, you talk in the book a, and it makes me think about when adam was talking about the momentum rolling down the hill you talk about the young lady that you worked with in prison and what a what a mission it was to just have to basically just turn up every day for her to realize like oh actually i do i you, there's someone who cares about me and and while she's consistently pushing you away and it seems to me that the the focus on the young people if we can catch them when the clear evidence and the markers are there that we've just got to feed these kids ju- literally just feed them then that will stop the roll-on effect of having to deal with these people in prisons who are so far down that road, who that momentum is going so fast for them that it's almost impossible to get out of. It's not impossible, but almost impossible. The average prison place is, and this is, I'm, I'm, this is on my mind at the moment as well, because the the, uh, the MOJ have just announced the that MOJ? they're building four new prisons, the Ministry of Justice. Um, to four new prisons to house 10,000 more prisoners in the UK. Now we already have the highest levels of incarceration in Western Europe. We have recidivism rates of people leaving prison and coming back, which is in the high seventies. Like the number of prison places isn't the problem. (laughs) It's not the problem. Um, And and prison, it it costs in the region of 50 to 60,000 pounds a year to host a prisoner. Um, and obviously more for higher category prisoners and actually more for youth offenders, for young offenders. Um, whereas, so the, 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 two, the two numbers that are absolutely mad is that in order to feed, give a child a good breakfast is 30 pence a day. Um, and in another set of studies, which I just, I just came off the back of um, do, 
doing a special podcast series with the Welcome Trust, um, which was looking at research that showed that giving prisoners nutritional supplements reduced violence in prison by an average 30%. Um, the cost of those supplements is 10 pence a day. So the idea that we need 10,000 more prison places um, at a cost of 2.5 billion in order to build these prisons is it's, it doesn't make fiscal or social sense at all. And, and it's more about needing to be tough on crime. It's, it's almost the equivalent of like, if you're a hoarder, then you just go and buy a shipping container to put all more stuff in rather than just say like, what is so the problem? Another shed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like why it costs more, and it's a bit of a cliche, but it's true. It costs more to fix a broken yeah. adult than to protect a child. And so, what we should be doing is just protecting children, like feed children, protect children. Like that's where we should be focusing our attention, not building 10,000 more prison places, which are only going to, you know, what happens is that you end up creating more intergenerational poverty and and imprisonment because the biggest risk factor for going to prison is having a parent in prison so you know the more spaces you have the more you know kids whose parents it just, <laughs> it's just a mess and everybody <laughs> the thing is everybody who works in the prison service so i was a psychologist in a prison for a, a, a number of years when i ran a service probation officers will tell you this prison officers will tell you this that prison places more prisons isn't isn't the issue it's about, you know, the pathway into prison in the first place, youth offending and, and children and the loss of, um, you know, places for kids to be after school and all of that sort of stuff, as well as inadequate rehabilitation. Like, that's the problem. Like, the number of prison places has never been an issue. So, yeah, <laughs> and brief. Um, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Um, so why, why the brain? Why have you become so interested, some might say obsessed, with the brain? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, again, I, I guess I guess the, the, the thread in this is going back to the, the starting point, the causal factor, right? Let's Rather than trying to work somewhere towards the end of the line and trying to kind of, you know, pour buckets out of a sinking ship. Why don't we just make sure the ship is as robust as it can possibly be in the first place? Um, and so it was, it was this strange thing where psychologists, so my job essentially is to help people understand their minds, you know, work with your mind, your thinking, your attitudes, your, your emotions, and, and it's this weird way in which we try to do that in a disembodied way. We try to look at the mind completely separately from the brain, you know, that we're not thinking, okay, well, we wouldn't do that with, um, I don't know, asthma. We wouldn't do it with asthma. Like if you came to me and I was your doctor and you had asthma, I wouldn't be saying, okay, well, we're going to give you this medication, but we're not going to assess your lungs at all. We're not even going to give any consideration to the physical health or state of your lungs. We're not going, you're not going, we're not going to try and improve the condition of your lungs. Like it, it wouldn't make any sense. Yet that's the way that we approach mental health. We say, okay, fine. We're going to deal with the symptoms of your brain, but we're not going to deal with the underlying condition and health of your brain at all. It's just a nonsensical position. Um, and so I, I decided that it was my responsibility to my clients to give them as effective 
a treatment as possible to help them to take care of the physical health of their brain, which is the underlying organ for their, their mental health. So it, it was just trying to be a better clinician, I think. How do you think the the sto- like the stories before we had the actual science, um, how do you think that has affected, like history has affected the way that we think about the brain now? Mm, I think it's been hugely influential and, and and massively detrimental so the whole issue with mental health is that it's considered separate from physical health again which doesn't make sense because your brain is a physical organ in your body um, but you know in the beginning it was we we looked at mental health as um as 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 being as possession you know maybe you were possessed by a spirit or a devil or a demon um, and then it was, you know, an idea about possession. It was always considered to be ethereal, something outside of you that came in to the body and was expressed as something to do with spirit or soul. Um, and, and really very, very separate. And again, you know, disembodied from the brain as a physical organ. And then Descartes came along and, and he said, you know, I think, and therefore I am. And what that did was, kind of took that idea and ran with it as if it the only as if thinking cognition the brain intellect were the only features of of a human worth considering and as if those things exist separate from the body your body is just this kind of meat suit that carries your brain around it's just there to give your your soul a container um which is of course completely untrue right so it everything that you understand about the world comes through the senses it comes through your body so your body is absolutely essential to your view of um, the world itself but also everything that happens in your body affects your brain um so it's so that i mean there's a there's a researcher in berlin su young park professor su young park and she has shown that even the composition of your last meal whether it was carb heavy or protein heavy can shift your sensitivity to fairness and the decisions that you make about being given an unfair offer. And that's linked to the amount of amino acids in your blood and how that affects the amount of neurotransmitters in your brain. So even the decisions you make are related to the last meal that you ate and and how that affects what's happening in your bloodstream. So the idea that we can think about mental health without thinking about the body is just, well, it's just, it's wrong and nonsensical. Um, and I think it keeps us away, it, or it has, I think it's changing now, but it's got in the way of us being able to find effective treatments or adjunctive treatments uh, for mental health and mental so illness. <laughs> this stuff is so fascinating. I've, I've, I feel like I can, now I'm going to be cooking up certain meals um, before big questions I have to answer, ask my girlfriend so that I know I get the, the best well, I think the best really interesting is the fact that just by changing your diet, you change your life and the outcome of your life. Because if it changes your decisions and the way you impact in every single scenario, that's like, it's almost like a sliding doors thing. It's like by having that one meal, that's changed how your life's ending. So it's so important to actually make sure that everything you eat is good because you only might you might fuck your life up because you ate a mcdonald's one day <laughs> well this is the thing and there's this you know the the, the studies that show that uh, again just in terms of hunger that judges will pass more harsh sentences before yeah. lunch than they will after lunch because they're 
they're hungry and they're a bit agitated because their cortisol is a little bit higher. That makes a demonstrable difference to the life of the person being sentenced, mm. right? If, if you're in for some, you know, acquisitive thing, if you're in for shoplifting and I've had a, a big breakfast, so I'm feeling all right and I give you, you know, a suspended sentence or probation or whatever, and you get to walk out versus I'm feeling a little bit agitated and I give you two months in prison, that will make a, a real kind of marked difference to your outcomes, you know, whether you lose your housing, whether you lose your job, whether you, you know, and it's this very strange, but subtle, but powerful way that in lots of different realms of the brain and, and psychology that nutrition places this really powerful role. The more that I do this podcast and the more that I'm learning, um, especially over the past sort of couple of years, the more I feel like if we understand our brain, then we are more able to basically manifest yeah. our own success. Yeah, I, I, I really think so. And I think, um, I mean, you see that in, in clinic, what people, what will happen is that people come in and they say, you know, am I just broken? Is it just me? Is there just something wrong with me? And I'm in a position where I can, you know, I can take your full assessment and I can look at your life and I can say, well, no, there's a clear reason that you feel like this. There's this thing happened and then this and then this and this. And then there was this accumulation of experience that led you to this point. Um, and if you understood that, if you'd understood that earlier on, then you would have given yourself a much easier time. You wouldn't have blamed yourself. You perhaps wouldn't have got into kind of negative patterns and negative cycles. But because that information again because we don't teach people to look after their brains in the same way we teach them to look after their physical health is just unavailable and so it, it comes as a surprise that no this was a completely expected outcome of all the things that you've been through and this is the way that we can we can fix it don't worry about it you know and it's just it's a strange the brain is strangely neglected considering it is the center of everything that you are how, how much of that do you think comes down to like vanity and people's <laughs> obsession with just making themselves look good on the outside and not really caring about what's happening inside? Yeah, no, 100%, um, or at least <laughs> 90%. Like, I think um, when, I, um, when I went, I, when I was talking to my publisher about, about the book in the beginning, um, I was like, my problem is I need to try to make the brain sexy i need to make it interesting because i can't give you a brain selfie like, <laughs> you know like is it, it, it i can't do that and and similarly with you know with physical health you know there is a you can have a 12-week plan or a body blast and you can have your before and afters and people people like to see change they like to get that feeling of quant uh, quantitative change i did this and here is my output Thank you very much. And other people are rewarding me for it by saying I look better. Right? You cannot do that with the brain. The best thing I can do is say, well, maybe in a few months time, you'll be less depressed. And maybe in 50 years time, you're less likely to have Alzheimer's disease. These are important and, and they're valuable, but they're long term and they're less visible. So it's about trying to people trying to get people on board to the idea that the brain and mental health is much more of a long game. And so you have to invest in it. Um, but also that when you, when your brain is healthier, 
you are capable of so much more. Like you're, you're more patient, you have more energy, you have more concentration, you know, you have more time for things, you're, you're less reactive, you're less likely to get into a fight. In some of the early studies with the prisoners, um, where they, and it was a placebo controlled trial, so there were some people that were on a, essentially a, an inert sugar pill and, and some who were on the active treatment. And those on the active treatment who, and the, you know, these are guys who had been career criminals, very violent, said suddenly they'd had this experience of calm that they'd never had before and and to think that they'd gone through their their whole lives thinking that there was just something wrong with them that they were just bad wrong rather than at least to some extent and i don't want to you know claim a panacea but that at least to some extent it was about what their brains were missing in order to be able to do these higher cognitive functions like impulse control and like reasoning and thinking about the consequences of one's actions yeah, I, I kind of catch myself now if I when you feel that sudden like surge of aggression come forward when you're like when you're about to get into a fight or a confrontation. And I I'm much better now at kind of I, I suppose because um, you you do dialectical behavior therapy. Right. So that's that's making you think about things before they start to happen. And and I suppose I'm I'm kind of self doing that myself of recognizing are this feelings coming rather than just going kind of getting swept along with it and lost in it mm -hmm. yeah and i think you know that's that's partly practice but it's it's partly about having a brain that's working properly right it's it's about engagement of the prefrontal cortex and that the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that is the last to develop but then for impulse control you need to have kind of a good um bi-directional relationship between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex you know the the hot emotion system your fight or flight response and the cooler more rational you know slow thinking consequential reasoning that happens in the pfc um you need proper nutrition to do that but you need those connections to be functioning properly you need them to be go you know to have been established and, and used on a regular basis. Um, and so it's that, that combination of early experience, but also environment um, that, that lays that down. Just, people <laughs> just need to know about their brains. <laughs> so, so you mentioned there the, the myelination. So obviously we, we need food to, um, to feed the brain to make sure that it's functioning properly. But then the thoughts that we repeatedly have make up the brain because the the uh, and i mean i'll butcher this but is it that, that you're getting fatty deposits that are that are covering the synapse is it the synapses the connections basically basically the more thought the more you think a thought the stronger it will though that it will wire together in your brain you, okay. how about you explain <laughs> that better than i can <laughs> confusing a few, a few different things so like so the myelination so myelination myelin is the um well, essentially, it's like when you have a wire, so when you have a nerve cell, this is a, this is the end of the nerve cell, which is connecting and getting the signal from a, a previous nerve. And you have a long wire, and then you have the same thing on the other end. Um, the the wire is, is called the axon, and the plastic essentially around the wire is called myelin. So in the brain, it's made of a fatty substance called myelin. Um, and this protection is really important because what it does is to help speed up the rate at which that signal is transmitted. Um, but it, when it 
wears down or if it breaks or is damaged for any reason, what it means is that that signal can get stuck. It's almost as if it's short circuits, like when you've got a frayed wire and your earphones stop working because you know there's a little break in there. And that's what happens in things like multiple sclerosis is that the myelin is damaged and attacked. Um, it's totally disorder, so the body attacks the myelin. And so that signal can't get through and that's when you get a loss of function. And depending on what kind of nerve it attacks, it will shift the, what function is, is damaged. So if it's um, like a motor nerve, then you might lose sensation or get pins and needles. If it's an optic nerve, then you have blurred vision or loss of sight. So that's myelination. And, and, and one of the things about myelination is that it, myelin is that it needs B12, it needs vitamin B12. And so what we see with people with vitamin B12 deficiency is that they have neuropathy, they have nerve pain, they have problems with memory, they have fatigue, they have a kind of cognitive fog. It can look like dementia when actually it's this severe nutrition deficiency. So there's that. Um, but in terms of laying down pathways, what happens when you think something over and over and over again is that essentially your brain recognizes that this is a, an important circuit. It's like, okay, this is something we thought a lot. It's an important circuit and it releases compounds that inject more receptors into the cell. So it's like, um, so if I've got a brand new neuron and it's got one receptor in it, but I keep sending signals to it. So if I keep saying to myself, I'm a bad person, I'm a bad person, I'm a bad person. My brain says, well, we seem to be using this circuit a lot. It must be really important. Let me add in some more receptors into those spaces. And so I can send a more a shallower signal, but it comes out as a stronger signal because I've got more receptors. And so it strengthens that signal, which is really, self, it's, it's great if you're thinking a positive thing, massively self-defeating if you're thinking a negative thing. So, yeah. That's absolutely insane. So literally by changing the things that we think about, we can literally change our entire lives. Yeah, you're changing your brain. And, and that's one of the reasons that changing habits is so hard is that actually you've, and I use the analogy of a pathway. Like if you ever run around a park, you know that there's yeah, always that right jogger's path where yeah. all the thousand joggers before you have <laughs> And you almost automatically follow it because you figure Psh, they must know something like <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on this path. And so that well-worn path is, is like the repeated thing that you've said to yourself over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. You've worn it into your brain. It becomes this well-trodden path that you almost automatically go on. You head into the park, it's there, you follow it without even thinking. Now, again, it's fine if that's a positive thought, like I can do it, like fantastic, go with it. But if it's a negative thing or something that doesn't help you, or if it's a fear response, then you end up slipping back into that pathway. And so what we do in therapy essentially is that we're trying to help this original pathway to fade whilst at the same time helping you to establish a, a healthier, more balanced pathway. And the thing is, is that the same mechanisms that laid this one down is what you need for this one, which is repetition and attention and emotion. So what can happen is that when people start to make a change or want to change, they, you know, they've got this new pathway that's starting to begin, but this one's still pretty strong. So it's so easy to fall back into that one. 
And I think nothing's changing. It's all wrong. It's all, you know, there's no point when actually you just need a bit more repetition, a bit more attention, a bit more focus and to allow this one to fade. And then you've got a new pathway laid down, but it takes time. And so I always want people to know that relapse is not a sign of failure or not trying hard enough or not wanting it enough. It's simply a sign that your brain is an energy efficient organ and it will try to save energy and it will save energy by going down the well-trodden path as often as it can. Is that why it's so easy to slip back into old habits, even if you've, even if you've conquered them for quite some time? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's almost as if, you know, you've been trying to run a different way across the park, but when you're tired, when you're low in energy, when you're stressed, when you're under pressure, it's just, it's less energy to try and lay down this new path and we'll just go down the old one. So it's almost like if you decide every single day, I'm going to walk up the stairs to my apartment and then like you do it and you get home one day and you're just so tired, you're like, I'm just going to get a lift. I was like, I'm just too tired for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is fine. And But then you need to kind of grab some more energy to be like, okay, now I'm going back to using the stairs. It's kind of, you have to keep retreading that path until it's well-worn as the original one, whilst at the same time using that original one less so that it fades. Other than therapy, what are some of the ways that people, are there any sort of like tips or tricks for, for people to kind of start with that? Um, so the keys to neuroplasticity, because that's basically what we're talking about. We're talking about reshaping your brain and plasticity is a feature of the human, uh, of the adult brain. Um, you can do it, you can reshape it. Um, so the keys to it really are repetition, emotion and attention. So the, the chemicals that are released when you pay close attention to something help with this process of building a new pathway. So it's, let's say you were trying to learn a new skill. Let's say you're, you're trying to learn how to play guitar, right? Um, it's not gonna work if you're learning to play guitar, but you're also watching Netflix at the same time. Like yeah. you're not giving it enough attention to be able to release the chemicals required to help those new connections to build. What you need to do is be like, okay, this is why it's important to me. Get into that feeling of why it's important to me. This is why I want it. This is the motivation. This is what I care about. Get in, uh, giving your full attention. So if you know you're not going to be able to focus for half an hour, saying, I know I can give it my full attention for 10 minutes and give it your full attention mm. for 10 minutes. And then just repeatedly drilling in whatever that chord is for those 10 minutes. And then for adult learning, what you need is repeated bouts of that. Like children are much better at getting like one lesson, soaking it in, going to bed, knowing it. Our brains, adult brains are a little slower. You need repeated bouts of those exposures with those conditions in order to have that new change take shape. So that's where we get as adults stuck because we have less time and our attention is divided into many more things. You know, it's easy when you're a kid to spend eight hours playing a computer game because yeah. you've got nothing else to do um so you you know you can clock it in a couple of weeks but as an adult learning something new requires different conditions and there are different demands on us that, that take us away from those conditions 
It's so funny you mentioned that actually because Adam and I have just they've just re-released a Nintendo 64 game that <laughs> me and Adam both used to play when we were kids and it's so funny going back and playing it i guess we're going back to those old pathways that are there and there's this wonderful sense of like nostalgia and like reliving this thing that we that we did so long ago it's, it's a very weird feeling it's really strange isn't it because I, I was uh, something came up on my spot spotify the other day and it was a song that i couldn't you know like if someone had asked me to name I don't know, boy band songs from the early 90s. I'm like, I don't know. I can't remember that. But the song starts playing and suddenly I'm singing along and I'm like, I didn't even know I remembered the words to that. Yeah. And so this is it. these pathways are there and they, I mean, it would have been faded. I, maybe when I was a kid, I would be able to sing it word for word. And so they were slightly faded, but they were still there. And that's a kind of example of the way that these pathways just sit there, dormant and fading until they're re-triggered. And, and and then they're kind of it's so it's again. so crazy isn't it it's like it's like when someone will mention something that you haven't thought of for like t 20 years and then all of a sudden they mention it and you go oh my god yeah and like it was <laughs> it, we're holding everything like that blows my mind that we're holding everything that's ever happened but and there's so many things that you won't access because you won't get that right trigger for it but someone just mentions like oh when i was five i used to watch this cartoon and you're like oh my god and and then it all comes back it's to almost you. like so emotions mad. are the things that unlocks it because it's like the nostalgia it's like having that memory and like how you felt at the time that comes back and it's like listening to the song you're listening to that would have brought back a certain feeling and it's as soon as you've got the feeling that you can then click into the certain things whereas someone just said can you tell me this you'd be like, I can't remember it. But I think mm. that's why it's so important to have emotions and stories and stuff that you can tell people and relate to people because it's like, then they're going to remember it a lot more. They're mm. going to have those connections. They're going to link it to stuff. Because like story is so important when it comes to anything. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're kind of story and meaning makers. That's, that's it's, it's part of our gift, but it's also part of our trouble that we will find meaning in the meaningless um as well and and so we're yeah we're constantly looking for the way emotion is a deeply important trigger for us and i guess that's the other thing that i always want people to know is that so many of our emotions are hardwired into our brains they have neural circuits evolutionary neural circuits and not just ones that are built from experience that but come built into the software to the hardware right they're there um and and I think because people don't know that with emotion, people tend to see them as problems. They're like things I need to control, manage, squash down, ignore, get rid of, because we so highly prize our cognitive abilities and our reason. But our emotion is so essential, A, to our existence as human beings, B, to our, our social relationships, but also just to making good decisions. Like if you cannot access your emotions, you can't make a decision that's meaningful for you. Um, and, and, and we see that in, in, um, in patients who have had kind of lesions or brain damage to the, that, that link between the emotional part of the brain and the, and the reasonable part, part of the brain. You can't decide what's important. So you can, in the classic study, the poor guy, he, he had been a high-flying professional, uh, had a, a, a brain trauma, and then spent hours trying to decide how to file his file. Should I do it alphabetically or should I do it by color? I, I, I don't know. And so things start to lose their meaning. And if you don't have access to your emotions, 
you can't decide whether something's important or not. And everything in life is about deciding whether something is important or not. Yeah, there was, there's been um, tests. On, I'm going to butcher this because I can't remember exactly what it was, but um, I think it was there. There was someone who'd who'd lost emotion, and so they couldn't make the decision between whether they wanted chicken or fish for dinner, and they could they could write a list of pros and cons for both meals of why each one, but they couldn't say which one they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because it's your emotion that says, that's what I want right now. That's what feels good. That's what connects with me. That's what resonates. And that's it's that connection between reason and emotion that helps you to make decisions. And I think people miss that. I think I just need to think my way through this. This comes up in therapy a lot where people think, oh, well, if I, if I, and even in their, in their romantic relationships, they're trying to work it out in terms of what's best. And actually you have to say, that's that's not it. I need you con to connect with how you feel because that's what's going to inform whether this is right for you or not. There's no, in the big decisions in life, there's no clear answer. There's no one sitting there saying, well, actually that was the correct answer, well done. You know, should you take this job or this job? Well, if they're equal in, in one of my, the, the, is the idea of it as an example in the book? Um, so like, let's say it's, it's about your values, right? So let's say, you're, you've just left college and you have a job that is high profile, high status, well paid um, versus a job that is social, pro-social, NGO, changing people's lives. You know, which job should you take? Well, you can't make a decision about that unless you know what's meaningful for you. You know, if what's meaningful for you is status, is financial security is making sure you can have enough money to take care of your family, then that's the job for you. If what's important to you is making a difference in the world or connecting or travel or, you know, being um, part of, of a social or cultural change, then that's the job to take for you. But, but both those decisions are based on your values, your emotion, what resonates with you. And, and I think people sometimes disconnect from that and think they can just make a rational decision about big decisions in life and it just doesn't work like that definitely um right so i need you to do me a favor Kimberly, because um my girlfriend will not listen to me so perhaps if it comes from someone else um then then she might actually pay attention but um how important is sleep um because and and so i know this is a selfish question but i know this is going to apply to so many people listening it mm. seems like we view sleep as the one thing that is easy to sacrifice and we keep on going doing the whatever it is because oh, i've got to get this done and whatever um so how important is a a decent amount of sleep all right so <laughs> sleep when, when people come to me um for whatever it is if it's depression if it's an eating disorder if it's you know whatever it is ask for a five-day sleep diary because as far as i'm concerned there is no point in us starting anything in in a clinical sense in a therapeutic sense if you're not sleeping properly sleep is so crucial to your brain function that it's almost a non-starter to try to do therapy on an underslept brain so so much goes wrong when you're not slept uh, when you're underslept right if you're if you're getting poor sleep Poor sleep increases our experience of anxiety, 
and a likelihood of feeling paranoid. So you're not even making good decisions when you're underslept. You're more likely to construe neutral faces as hostile. So it's going to in influence your relationships. You're going to feel more under pressure. You're going to feel experience more hostility. You're going to think the world is much more negative than it actually is. And that's going to have a knock on effect both on how you feel, but then how you behave. Um, you're much more emotionally reactive. Uh, obviously your concentration is shot, your mood is shot, but also the physical structure of your brain is impaired. So one of the most important things that happens in your sleep is, so you've got your synapses, which is uh, the gap between the two ends of your nerves. Um, and your signals and neurotransmitters have to cross across the synapse in order for you to have any thoughts, ideas, for your brain to function at all, right? Um, and, but during the day, you get a buildup in that synapse of various metabolic byproducts, toxic proteins, just like everyday gunk uh, from your day. Um, and if that builds up too much, what it can do is to block the signal. And in the same way that when a signal goes through and is repeated, that gets stronger, if a signal doesn't get through and this nerve isn't used, it starts to fade and die back. And that's what we call neuronal atrophy. And you, you do not want your brain cells to die, right? That's, that should be that's a given, but just in case, you do not want brain cells to die. Um, and so we don't want a buildup of stuff in between your brain cells uh, too much. And your brain can clear it through the day, but your rate of clearance doubles during sleep. Um, and one protein in particular is called amyloid beta is the signature protein for Alzheimer's disease. Um, and it's, it's produced in lots of different ways. It's produced from lots of normal reactions in the brain, but essentially one of the reasons that sleep disorders are a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And we think it's because they you're not getting that clearance of amyloid beta during deep sleep to allow the brain cells to work properly. So I, I don't know if I can make it any clearer. Sleep is absolutely essential to the structure and function of a healthy brain. How do you work out how many hours you need? Because people always say, oh, I, I need eight hours, I need 10 hours. How, like, is there a method to working that out? Not really. We, we tend to think that subjective rating, so how you feel yourself is best indicator. So some people will be naturally short sleepers, your six or seven hour errors. Um, and some people will be long sleepers, seven, eight, nine hour people. Um, and, and really the best way to work that out is to give yourself a few clear days when you're not having to get up to an alarm clock, you know, and just be like, okay, I'm gonna go to bed when I'm tired. I'm gonna wake up when I wake up and I'm just gonna count how many hours that is average that out and that's going to be your best indicator of the amount of sleep you need you know assuming that you've not had a massive week where you've been overtired you know assuming normal tiredness normal conditions then that's going to be your best indicator yeah, of the sleep i think that's that a really important need. thing that people do now as well because it's like i think just making that observation is so important for your whole life going forward and it's obviously like a few days worth of sacrifice for not setting your alarm at the right time like yes you might wake up later but then like the benefit of going to bed that bit earlier in future is going to make such a difference to your whole life. So I think anyone listening to this now, if you don't know that, 
do that now like it's so important to start it as soon as possible you know it's an easy in and the thing about kind of mental health generally and mental illness in particular is that these are hard to treat conditions they're hard things to rectify so we're looking for as many easy ins as possible and so if going to bed an hour earlier is going to make you feel less anxious less paranoid less hostile less emotionally labor that is something that we need to be thinking of like immediately I have like a, I guess, emotional um, kind of thing with with sleep. Um, I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome when I was about 17. And at the time, um, I was listening to a lot of Nas and there's a lyric where he says, um, I don't sleep because sleep is the cousin of death. And Mm. all I was doing was sleeping. Uh, I was sleeping for like 18 hour blocks. And during that time, like listening to that lyric and just like, I just, I felt dead. I felt so, um, and the way that I gradually like healed over the years, over the years was by getting into more of a routine. And, and so now like I go to bed at 10 and it's religious, like I'd never break it. And I'm always in bed at that time. Um, unless me and Ada speaking somewhere and then that's the only time when it will, it'll be later, but I'm sort of really, um, I'm really sort of, uh, regimented with it. Um, but I do still have the um, the kind of urge to sleep during the day. And I get that quite a lot. Um, is that, I mean, I'm just using you for my own personal gains now, but, um, <laughs> but, but like, I think, yeah, it's something I've been wondering about for a while. Like, should, is, is it bad to, can you oversleep? Is it like, should I resist that feeling when I'm like, I could really just go and have a nap for an hour now, or should I like take the nap and feel refreshed afterwards? Um, so that that really depends. So yes, it's possible to oversleep. Um, that usually happens when someone just resists the urge to get up, right? right. So like, think, oh, I've got nothing to do. I might as well stay in bed. And then you oversleep. Then you've, you know, your circadian rhythms are a bit skew with, and and that has knock on effects. Um, the really the, the literature on daytime sleepiness is um, is mixed. So. If it's because you've not had sufficient sleep in the evening, you know, overnight, then we'd be saying, you know, have more sleep overnight. Um, if it's not, you know, if we think about daytime sleepiness, we're thinking about other things like you're making sure that there are any other problems that are causing your daytime sleepiness. Um, but frankly, I, I don't see anything wrong with an hour's nap in the afternoon. There's always a natural dip anyway in alertness somewhere around three or four o'clock for most people. Um, some areas of the literature argue that that's when historically we would have had an afternoon nap. Obviously yeah. across kind of central Europe, we've got the siesta, um, which is just a way of dealing with the heat of the of the day. As long as it's not interfering with the quality of your overnight sleep. So I wouldn't want you to be napping at three, if then you couldn't get to bed till one um, when your normal bedtime is 10, yeah. then, you know, because that would be a problem because actually it's, like I said, that overnight deep sleep is when your brain gets that lovely clearance um, of, of amyloid beta and other things. But if it's not impairing your overnight sleep and if it's just like a one, a one-off nap, a little half hour nap, then no, I don't think there's a problem with that, assuming there's no other issue underlying. What I've found is, um... I've like over the past couple of weeks, I've started meditating. I've kind of never done it before. And well, I've tried it a long time ago in the mornings, but never really felt any benefit from it. Um, and then recently I've started to, as I get to that three, three o'clock kind of in the afternoon, start to feel a slump. 
because I generally like you generally kind of like the stress of the day is kind of built up and it's just like, I'm just like tired and can't really concentrate so I found that by taking kind of 15-20 minutes to sit and meditate in that time it then kind of completely clears my brain of the stress anxiety all the kind of like busyness that's going on in there and the tiredness that's kind of built up almost because I'm kind of combating all of these things and then after that 20 minutes mm. I'm like whoa this is like I feel completely different it's like I've had a nap and woken up like woken up fresh so I've, yeah I've only been doing it for the past few weeks now but mm -hmm. I've seen a massive difference in in my kind of alertness in the afternoon yeah I think you know it's whatever because I think probably the main thing is addressing that stress that that's building up isn't it it's about that, that moment of recognition of the physiological and psychological state that you're in at that point. Um, and I think that's something that basically nobody does. You know, we all just kind of hammer through the day, get home. I think it's the reason that we, the UK has such high drinking levels is that we hammer through the day, get home absolutely wrecked and stressed, have no means of being able to switch that off or turn that off. Um, in, and particularly in order to get to sleep because sleep isn't like an on off switch it's more like slowing down a car it's like coming gradually down whereas what happens with our busy lives is that we get home and kind of slam into a wall and kind of <laughs> the audio there, I? <laughs> um, we slam into a wall and then expect your body to be able to switch over into sleep it just doesn't make any sense at all and i think that's why people have a drink because it's oh it's a sedative it kind of helps to knock you out it ruins the quality of your sleep but people think you know there's no other way that i'm able to switch my brain over from this state of kind of really high elevated activity alertness stress energy to a state that's required which is calm slow you know relaxed which is required for sleep um so yeah, so I think it's it's about addressing those stresses. If we could do it more often, you know, as they came up, as it happened, you know, every day for a few minutes. One of the reasons that I recommend for a lot of my clients who struggle with recognizing their emotions, a one line a day diary, just just one line a day, just tell me how you're feeling or tell yourself how you're feeling. Like, what am I feeling? So that you learn to recognize in the moment what you're experiencing. So you become more familiar with checking in with yourself so that you don't get to a point three months down the line when you haven't realized how stressed you are you just kind of collapse so obviously uh, a lot of our listeners are creative people what can people do to increase to increase their creative thinking lie down <laughs> <laughs> yeah lie down um so we're not entirely sure why, but lying down is supposed is is one of the ways that uh, we're supposed to reconnect, reconnect and, and find your creativity. Um, so weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the brain is is hilarious and ridiculous um, and brilliant all at the same time. I obviously my bias is going to be towards making sure your brain is fundamentally healthy to start with um, as much as possible. Um, What's really interesting, actually, is the we don't you don't realize until it's over how much of your creativity is drained from mundane things like the attention that it takes to deal with mundane, tiny little things. Um, and and so it's almost like if you take care of 
you know, make sure you're paying your bills on time. Like, don't give yourself unnecessary stressors. You know, take care of the little things. Take care of the little niggles that arrive. You know, make sure that you've got enough space. Because essentially, I think creativity is about freedom. Like, creativity is something that emerges as one of our higher the human um, psychological attributes, right? You have to have your baseline. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You've got to have your base in place. You need security, safety. You need to have your foundations in place. You cannot be creative if you're worrying about, you know, where you're going to sleep that night. You, you, you know, these things cannot happen. You do not have the freedom of mind to do that. So, uh, and that goes for your physical health as well. You cannot feel as creative as possible if, you know, you're dealing with a bit of back pain, a bit of knee, knee pain. You've got this thing that you haven't properly addressed. You're not looking after yourself properly. So if we take the idea that creativity is freedom and where these things are in your control, because obviously someone can't deal with poverty, there's, there's not much, you know, I can't really yeah. speak to that. But taking care of the foundation, making sure you're taking care of your physical health, you're properly nourished, you're moving enough, you're properly slept, that your relation, you're taking care of your relationships. Because again, it's difficult to be creative if you're having a massive yeah. argument with your partner for four days. <laughs> you know, that's that's not going to happen. Um, so it's it's almost as if in order to be creative, you've, you've got to be quite boring. You, you've got to be quite, be quite boring and take care of the fundamentals in order that you can switch off the caretaker part of yourself and allow that child, creative, artist part of yourself to feel safe enough to play. I, I mentioned before we started recording that um, I think this is what like one of the best books I've ever read. I think it's, it's incredible. It's it's kind of like a, a whole, a plan for like success in your whole life and just how all of these different, I mean, you mentioned money there, like there's even a section on, on money. And so it, it's about a lot more than, than just the brain. Um, I think one of the most um, sort of important parts of it was the, is the future self exercise. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I, it is one of my favorite exercises. I haven't done one for myself recently, actually. Maybe I should. Um, so one of the issues that we have around making change, one of the cognitive biases that emerge is what's called future discounting. And this is one of the issues with the brain that I kind of touched on earlier on. Like, if you don't feel like you're going to get the benefits straight away or quite soon, it's difficult to see the value in it. Um, and you can see this, the, the, the classic... Um, test for this is if I said to you, um, guys, um, I can give you a fiver now or 20 quid in two weeks, which would you prefer? And most people, even though they'd be better off waiting, would say, oh, I'll just have a fiver now, wicked, cheers. Um, you know, so we discount the value of things that seem a bit further off. And so what I encourage people to do is to send an email to their future self. And there's a website that you can do this, it's called future, futureme.org. Um, and you just you know, whether it's tomorrow, next week, a month's time, what you do is write an email to yourself. It, it basically um, sends it at a set time that you that you, you, you set for it. Um, and what it can help to do is to remind you that the future arrives much more quickly than you think. It's there much sooner than you imagine. Um, and that the behaviors of your previous self have a direct impact on your future self. Um, and you can set it to do a range of things. Like sometimes if you're in a difficult patch, like if you're in the middle of a breakup, you can send a message to your future self and you can be like, look, 
right now you feel awful, but I reckon by the time you get this, you'll be feeling better. And actually it can be helpful to be like, oh, actually I do feel much better. It's a useful reminder that difficulties are temporary and things change and you can move forward. Um, but you can also use it to help shift things. Like, look, you said you were gonna stop smoking by this time. I just need to check in to see whether you have. And then future you goes, oh, well, I have or I haven't. And it can be quite a useful reminder. It's like being giving yourself a little pep talk. I was, I was thinking the other day, actually, because um, I was listening to something and they were talking about how failures, a lot of people say that failures are a good thing because you learn from them. But what people don't really talk about is the wins that they have all the time. And I thought what would be a really great thing to do would be to have some kind of journaled system where every time something good happens in your life, you write that down. And I actually ordered a book, hopefully arrived, like a journal that every time I do something good and I'm like, that was good, that was a win add that into there and I thought it'd be really nice to just have something that you could go back and see every little good thing that happened rather than kind of reminiscing on the failures and trying to learn from them learn from the things that went well and even just like having a book that you could then give to someone else that would just be these are all the things I did and these are how they went well rather than the negative side of it because I think yeah people don't think about that enough no, I think that's absolutely brilliant. And and I think it, it, it kind of does two things, which is that it counters our automatic human response, which is to focus yeah. on the negative. And you know that, like, if you ever send out a tweet or a message or something, and you've got 100 people saying, wow, that was amazing, guys, fantastic. And then you've got one person saying, well, that was a waste of time. Your entire brain is focused on this one <laughs> <Yeah>. dude <laughs> who has said critical thing. Um, so we have this- And it's cool, always a yeah. Um, so we have this automatic negative attentional bias to the to the to the bad things that happen, um, and and I do exactly the kind of thing that you you suggest, Adam, with with clients. So if I've had someone who has had you know a very long history, you know, or very built in paths of negative thinking, critical thinking, um, it can be very difficult for them to even recognise when things are changing or when things are better or whether they've done something well. And they'll sit there, for example, and they'll come in and they'll say this, 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 and this. And I'll say, well, well that was, that's quite different from what you did in the same situation last month, wasn't it? And they'll be like, oh yeah, yeah, I didn't even notice. And so what I will do with those people is um, to either, you know, in the back of, I always recommend journaling for, for my clients, but keep a list of, of wins, you know, so that you can remind yourself, so you can go back and have, a physical in your face undeniable list of the things that went well um or sometimes i, I do this less i don't know I, I have done this with clients you can have um a jar a jar works quite nicely so you know those little um tabs that yeah. highlight tabs you can use for like, yeah, it's like mini post-it notes books. Um, yeah. yeah 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 exactly so you pick a jar um and it's your win jar and every time something good happens you write down in your little post like and you put it in the jar and then at the end of the week at the end of the month what's quite nice about that is that it's it's really yeah. visual you can see the jar fill up with things that have gone well and so when you get into a difficult or dark place or just a negative space even if it's momentary then you you have a physical thing that you look at and say actually this negative part of me which is saying nothing's changing nothing's working i always fail is literally wrong because i've got a jar full of wins in my face so it's kind of it's really effective Amazing. Yeah, I love that. that's really cool uh right so kimberly well let us know how much we owe you for the <laughs> therapy session and 
And if you could let everyone know um, where they can find you online and where they can get the book. Sure. So uh, the plate. So probably two places uh, where I put most of my stuff. So um, my website, KimberlyWilson.co, and it's Kimberly with an L E Y, and that's got uh, links to my online book club to podcasts and other bits and pieces on there and then the place that I am most active kind of day to day is Instagram where I am food and psych so f-w-d-a-n-d-p-s-y-c-h um and that's where I just chat nonsense and post pictures of the, th- the latest thing that I'm <laughs> so <laughs> um, well, hopefully give helpful psychological advice and tips and then I do a Sunday live on Instagram every Sunday where we go through a little bit of psychological chat and, and, and Q&A. So hopefully that's useful for Brilliant. people as well. Yeah, Instagram's a, a big kind of platform for you, isn't it? Yeah, and, and kind of randomly so, because I, I literally started out um, just posting pictures on my lunch, as we all do. Um, and then I started getting annoyed with the very, very bad nutritional information that clients were coming to me with. And so I quite often work with people with with eating issues and I would see someone who was terrified of eating bananas because they were sweet. And I would say, where did you get this terrible information from? And they would say, so-and-so's Instagram account. And so I decided that it would just be useful to have a place where you could put yeah good information out there and that's when i started getting a bit more active on instagram and then i started doing the same really for mental health because um wellness went through that phase of just saying you know you should just think positively and uh, you know almost kind of suppress any negative feelings it's, it's come out of that a little bit um but there was a lot of terrible psychological advice being thrown around and i just thought this is actively harmful and most of it's nonsense and you guys don't know what you're talking about <laughs> so, <laughs> so i started posting um psych information and brain information with the references um just so that people had a resource for kind of evidence-based mental health and, and psychology and, and brain health. That's the ticket, isn't it? Is evidence-based. It's like you back everything up. That's why That's why it's so useful. Because it's like, if I try and give any sort of advice to my mum, it's... It's. I think it's difficult because, like, because people are always disproving things. And I've I've sent a copy of your book to my mum actually because it's something I really want her to read. But, um, I I think yeah, it's it's you do need that like because now everyone's got an opinion. It's like for me, wh- whatever I'm going to be doing to my body or my brain, I need to know that there's actual science behind it now. Yeah, and that was a big thing with the book because, you know, and particularly, I mean, the book is more than nutrition, but I think particularly with nutrition, everybody has their own camps and their own tribes and they, you know, you can find any evidence to support your belief that you start out with in the first place. But with the book throughout, what I've done is to look at research which was done on humans and and meta-analyses and groups. Because so that I'm not just extrapolating animal data or mechanism data from a few cells, um, but actually what I'm giving you is information that is relevant to people like you, like actual humans yeah, living their you're lives. You're not a rat. Um, you're not a rat. You're not a mouse. You're yeah. not a mouse. Like, <laughs> um, so yes, I've tried really hard to make it as relevant and evidence-based as possible. Amazing. Um, thank yeah, you so much, dude. That was amazing. so fun. Really, really interesting thank chat. You guys. <laughs> we can definitely so come back for part two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll go do for a another part hour two. here. Yeah, 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 definitely. 
<laughs> yeah, we'll we'll sort it out in like yeah six months. Yeah, or something, we'll yeah. do a face to face one. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks so much for listening. To get any value from these episodes, it would mean the world to us if you could share the podcast with someone who needs it. You can always reach out to us on Instagram at rebelscreate or head over to creativerebels.co. And remember, always be creating. See ya.